Section 2 of Recollections of Life in Ohio from 1813 to 1840 by William Cooper Howells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Sue Anderson. Section 2, Chapter 3 The New Country and New Home, Setting Up the Woolen Mill, Drowning of the Pony, Boyish Pleasures and Accomplishments, the war with England, English sympathies, removal to Mount Pleasant, more woolen mills set up, a good offer, removal to Steubenville. The part of Ohio into which we came in 1813 was one of the best improved in the state. The country was well cleared up and settled by thrifty and in some instances wealthy farmers. The excellent mill stream of Short Creek then much better than now, on its whole twenty-five miles of length, had a good flouring mill at every available site, and one respectable paper mill. Mount Pleasant, the town where we went to meeting, and for what little trade we did, was a larger and more prosperous place than it is now after fifty-five years, and had six or seven hundred inhabitants, while Steubenville boasted of two thousand and extensive manufactures. Still, it was a new country, and life in it was attended with numerous inconveniences. As soon as the family was settled in a good hewed log house with shingle roof, my father set about his preparations for manufacturing wool, according to his engagement. But while we were on the way from Virginia, Steer's flouring mill, which was an extensive one, was burned down, and on our arrival they were busy rebuilding it, and building a house for the woolen mill also. This retarded father's work, as the fire had crippled the means of the proprietor. But father had the direction of mechanics, who built machinery from his drafts and explanations in a very primitive way. A blacksmith nearby, who made axes, did the work in steel and iron, including the forging of the spindles, which was a rather particular job, as they had to be made round with the file, as well as other work by hand, that would have been properly done on a lathe. The summer was taken up with the building of the house and machinery, and it was pretty well into the winter before the factory was started. So far as I know, it did well enough as a small concern, but for some reason that I did not understand, father gave it up at the end of his first year's engagement and moved to Mount Pleasant. At these mills we lost the little mare that father brought from Virginia by an accident that impressed me very sorrowfully. Father had taken two of the children of the black family that came with us over the mountains as apprenticed servants a boy named Zachariah, for short, Zach, about fourteen years old, and eminent for laziness and stupidity, and his sister Delilah, both of whom we let off on easy terms in a few months. It seems that father had to collect wood for burning as the winter came on, and he put poor Peggy in a cart with Zach to drive and haul some wood from the creek bank, and as a small boy I went along. The cart was loaded, and Zack started to drive home when he got one wheel of the cart into a rut. Father lifted at the wheel, and Zack whipped up and hallooed, 
when the mare pulled out of the mud and ran so near the edge of the bank that one wheel went over, and the cart and poor little mare turned upside down into the water where it was deep enough to drown her in that situation. I can now see father in the water, making frantic efforts to turn her over, and then trying to hold her head up while he sent Zack for a knife to cut the harness. I ran hastily to the nearest house for one, but Zack went double the distance home for it. I was first back with the knife, though it was of no use, as poor Peggy had been drowned. It was a loss of some sixty dollars to father, and of many a ride to me, besides the pain of losing a favorite animal and a family pet. The situation at the mills was, I should think, a rather pleasant one to persons who felt at home, but it was not so with my poor mother. She was proud, and we were poor, and I have no doubt she suffered from homesickness pains which I knew nothing of, and of which father could soothe only by pleading his necessities. I enjoyed our life, of course. The house stood close to the mill race where I caught my first fish. Three, I remember one morning, as fast as I could put in the hook and throw them into the kitchen door. This charmed hook I lost soon afterward by getting it fast in some driftwood in the creek. From a small stream that tumbled down the hill into the creek opposite the house, I observed and settled in my mind the fact that water always ran downhill and never up. Though only six years and a half old, I was very proud, as were my parents, of my acquirements, for I could read well and had committed to memory a number of Watts's hymns and some of Cowper's poetry, including the whole of John Gilpin. The war with England was now fairly begun, and I recollect the news of battles and victories were much talked of by men at the mills. Father, as a Quaker, disliked the war, and, in addition, had an affection for his native country that checked any interest in such news. One of the men once told him of a victory over the British and asked him very gleefully if he was not glad. Father indignantly told him no, he was not glad to hear of any battle, and still less could he rejoice over the killing of so many of his countrymen. I fell in with this spirit, and as a child said what I thought, and was of course called a Tory and British by older ones who thus amused themselves at my childish earnestness. On one occasion some young men were teasing me, and proposed to hang me as an enemy to the country. I was terrified to some extent, but kept up a brave exterior, and told them I was only sent over from England as a show of what Englishmen were. This precocious piece of national vanity struck them as funny, and they laughed loudly over it, and the next day, when I was present, some of them told father, seeming to regard it as smart. Father frowned and reproved me for talking such nonsense. I began to see that my remark was silly, and was sadly mortified, and felt so disgraced that I always after avoided the subject. Father, having made arrangements to go to Mount Pleasant, he joined two brothers of the name of Hunt, Samuel and Jonathan, who owned a large horsepower mill, which they converted into a factory for woolen work. 
but it took a good while to get it ready, and we were delayed in moving till late in the spring. After getting to our new place, father went to work in great spirits, and soon after he and the hunts were joined by a Scotchman, Thomas Donaldson, whom we had known in Virginia. He introduced the spinning of flax as an addition to the business. This required new machinery, which they set about building. My recollection is that it was well into the winter before they got ready to spin any flax, and when they tried it, they failed, because the flax required to be kept moist, and the house was so open that they could not keep it from freezing. On some mild days they made very nice thread of flax, and with a coarser machine they made a good deal of tow twine, which they wove into some coarse fabric. But they were, as I suppose, compelled by poverty to give it up, and the partnership was dissolved. After this, which exhausted another year of fruitless labor, father began alone, being assisted by credit from John Hogg, an enterprising Englishman who kept a store. Under this arrangement, father built a house for a factory, in a part of which he finished off rooms for us to live. He got together machinery for carding and spinning wool for country customers, they being mostly satisfied with the carding from which they spun it at home. This carding brought in some return for work, a thing that did not happen to any great extent to the four partners the year before. The delay in building must have exhausted all father had of means before anything was earned, for I can well remember the straitened manner of our living and the distress of father and mother under the circumstances. He worked hard, and I, who was in my ninth and tenth years, did what I could to help in tending the carding machine and splicing the rolls for the spinning machine, a process now gone out of use. The machines were propelled by horsepower, which was supplied by a blind horse that we called Charlie, whose duties extended to carrying us when not at the wheel. My brother Thomas, though very young, was sometimes detailed to drive Charlie when at the wheel. It was early in 1815 when father began to build, within which year he got started, but this kind of life continued till June 1816, when one day John Arthur, one of the hands who worked under father at Steer's factory, came as a messenger from a Steubenville factory, where he then worked, with an offer to father to come and take charge of the carding room, which contained eight or ten machines attended by boys, at a salary of five hundred dollars a year. This was an unexpected turn of affairs. Father's business was neither very prosperous nor promising, and he was deeply in debt, chiefly to John Hogg. He told Arthur that he would want a short time to consider the proposal he brought, and he could occupy it in feeding his horse. A family council was called, in which I took part, and it was decided that the offer should be accepted, and the next day or so he started, leaving a large lot of wool to be carded. A well-grown boy who knew something about the business was employed, and he and I, with mother to look after the business and accounts, finished up the carding to the satisfaction of the customers. This took a few weeks' time, but the family was removed to Steubenville in August. Mr. Hogg befriended father, 
took the concern off his hands at a tolerably good price, perhaps all it was worth, and assumed all the debts that the balance over his own dues would pay, though many troublesome ones remained to haunt us for some years afterward. Chapter 4. Again Among the Quakers. Relation of the Author's Parents to Them. Sketch of Quaker Usages and Customs, Religious and Social. Our life in Mount Pleasant must have been a trying one to father and mother, for there was much time lost for them in non-paying labor, and they both had constant hard work to do, with very little return for the labor they performed. Years were used up in getting ready to do something, while the expenses of living went on. It was a great mistake here that father did not take to school teaching, as any Yankee would have done, and for which he was well qualified, and at which he might have been well employed. But he had very little genius for adapting himself to new scenes and new circumstances. Our social position in this place was as good as the best, in spite of our poverty. But neither father nor mother would presume upon it or use it in the least, and in their discouraged state of mind, they even neglected advantages that fairly belonged to them by virtue of it. The people were neighborly, and our Quaker friends did much to make it agreeable to us. At this time neither father nor mother belonged to any church, but they regularly attended the meetings for worship of the Quakers, or Society of Friends, as they called themselves. They treated us socially as if we belonged to them, and we observed their manners in dress and used the plain language, that is, we addressed each other in the second person singular, and not the plural you, though it was ungrammatically done by using the objective form of the pronoun thee for the nominative, which left it without the warrant of correctness on which they defended that departure from custom. The Quakers in an early day bore a testimony, as they expressed it, against the fashions of their time in dress and language. To do this, they adopted the costume well known as theirs everywhere, which was simply continuing the use of the plain style of the period. In language, they carefully eschewed all complementary forms of address, insisting that all men were equal, and that none were entitled to titles or terms of address indicating any superior position. They said these titles were always false in their application, and that the use of the plural pronoun you was like a false pretense that the person addressed was of more consequence than a single individual, though in this they were mistaken, for the complimentary use of you grew rather from an intent to avoid an improper familiarity with the person addressed for we find that oblique form of address expressed in other languages by other words. But the Quakers stoutly insisted upon the use of our solemn style in this respect, and said thou, thy, and thee scrupulously in every case of singular address. But there was a stiffness about the use of thou instead of you that bothered the off-handed among them, and they, not disposed to keep up the strain of the solemn style, would substitute thee for thou, and say thee is, thee does, etc. And this became so established that thou was rarely heard, 
but they steadily avoided you, for this was the great point with them. In England they addressed the king as George, and would not take off their hats on entering his presence. They would not address a man as Mr., or a woman as mistress, because this was bestowing upon them homage that was due only to God. The friends also bore a testimony against judicial oaths, insisting that they were unchristian, and that a solemn affirmation of a fact was all that ought to be asked of a man when giving evidence. Indeed, they rather bore the same testimony against all civil governments that enforced their authority or defended their nationality by war. They sturdily refused to pay military fines or assessments, and would suffer their property to be taken for such purposes, rather than resist by any force. Against slavery they also came to bury testimony, and we find Benjamin Lay and John Woolman constantly preaching against the evil of holding slaves among friends in their day. Within my memory they have been anti-slavery as a society. The very earliest Quakers, like the Puritans, did not hesitate to fight, and were no doubt equally prudent in keeping water from their powder. Indeed, they appear at first to have made their stand against the absurd and unchristian formalities of the church, dress, manners, etc. They came to take the like stand in after years against evils greatly prevalent, like slavery, war, and the making and use of intoxicating drinks. Their discipline forbid their selling or giving grain for distillation, or even making whiskey barrels or bottles. Religiously, they rejected all forms and ceremonies, and particularly they denounced a hireling priesthood. They held that baptism and the supper were to be received spiritually. In their meetings for worship, certain persons were recognized by common consent as ministers, who, if moved by the Spirit, might preach or pray publicly, as the Presbyterians say, lead in prayer. The custom is for their meetings for worship to gather, as they say, at 11 o'clock a.m. on Sunday and Wednesday, that is, every first day and fourth day, for they call the days of the week and the months by their numbers, and not the common names, which they say are heathenish terms. They enter the house very quietly, the men seating themselves on the right, and the women on the left side of the house, in free seats, all alike. Two or three seats, rising like a gallery, are placed at the back of the house, that is, furthest from the entrance door, and facing the congregation, or meeting, as they call it. On these are seated any ministers present, and certain ones who have been designated as elders. After taking their seats, all sit in perfect stillness and silence, with or without their hats on, as they prefer, and, as they express it, wait. If no one is moved to speak, in about an hour, the elders turn to each other and shake hands, and then the meeting breaks. If anyone is moved to speak, he or she, for women preach as well as men, rises, uncovers the head, and begins, very slowly at first, and then warming up into more rapid utterance, in a sort of chanting or half-singing tone. If the remarks are short, there will be silence for a time, 
when the same speaker or another may rise again and continue the subject. But the silence may be followed by a prayer, when the one uttering the prayer solemnly rises, pauses till attention is obtained, then kneels down, when all the congregation rise, the men uncovering their heads, and remain standing till the prayer is closed. There is no such thing as singing or music tolerated by them at any time. If distinguished public friends, that is, preachers of note from abroad, are present, they usually preach and pray. At their weekday meetings, business of the society is transacted at a session after the worship, when the members only remain in their seats at the adjournment. At these business meetings, the men and women transact their business separately, and for this purpose their meeting houses are usually so constructed that the two sides of the house can be divided by sliding partitions. Their church polity is very simple and yet well arranged. A convenient number of societies is grouped together as a monthly meeting, having a session on some weekday when matters of a more general nature are disposed of than at the society's meeting. Here all marriages take place, though I believe they are announced at the weekly meetings. Special meetings are sometimes called for marriages, though this is very seldom. Monthly meetings are grouped into quarterly meetings, where business is managed by the elders, and these again are grouped into yearly meetings, which constitute the event of each year within their limits. The domestic affairs of families and neighborhoods are materially affected by their recurrence. The farm work is adjusted to the occasion so as to leave leisure for attending the yearly meeting, to say nothing of provision for entertaining friends from a distance, the buying and making up of new clothes, etc. Even trade is subject to the period, all through a Quaker neighborhood, yearly meeting makes stir and lively times on its approach and equivalent dullness on its departure. I recollect a characteristic remark of a young Quaker printer who had just stepped over the society's bounds for the first time to look for work and was talking with me in Wheeling, West Virginia, about traveling as a journeyman. I said something about New Orleans, then nearly the only place where printers found work and good wages, remarking that I heard it was dull there. Oh, yes, said he, yearly meeting is over, and there won't be much doing. Any member in good standing is entitled to a seat in these meetings, except those sessions known as meetings of ministers and elders. The meeting for sufferings is a curious term they have for what is their committee of ways and means, sitting as a committee of the whole. All the decisions of questions arising in any of their meetings are regarded as unanimous if no objection is made. The voice of the meeting is expressed by silent approval, or stated objection to the question, is the measure approved? If objection is made, the question is further discussed, or laid over for another time, or finally dropped. But there is a practice among them of deferring to the opinions of the aged and experienced, or confessedly influential members, whom they know as weighty friends, that stands very much in the way of opposition in any manifest manner. Their marriages are mutual, the legal license is dispensed with, 
and the marriage is announced at some public meeting some time beforehand. The ceremony takes place in meeting when the man and his attendants take their seats in the elders' gallery on the woman's side of the house. At the close of the meeting for worship, it is given out that so-and-so will then be married, when they rise, and each declares that the other is then taken as a partner for life, each pledging love and faithfulness till death. A marriage certificate is then made out, and voluntarily signed by friends, and the marriage duly recorded. Of the religious doctrines of friends there is not much certainty. Their old books that treat of this subject are very vague, and deal more in pious experiences and protests against ceremonials and extravagances of living and dress, rather than any particular forms of doctrine. They held to the freedom of the will and consequent moral responsibility. Judging from some tracts by William Penn and others of his time, it is doubtful if they accepted the doctrines of the English Church respecting the Trinity or vicarious atonement. They are now divided into Orthodox and Hicksites, and this division has nearly been the death of them. The Orthodox, since that division, which became final in 1828, hold pretty much the same doctrine as the so-called Orthodox churches, or, more properly, the Methodists. Their confession of faith was formulated by Elisha Bates, who had a personal difference with Elias Hicks, a man of much distinction and a rival of Bates in many respects. I knew Bates pretty well, having worked for him as a printer about a year, and I never could escape the impression that Bates was led to push this distinction of doctrine to a point that would give Hicks the appearance of heresy from a feeling of personal antagonism to the man himself. The Hicksites at this time pretty generally resemble the Unitarians, and they are about as destitute as ever of any well-defined religious ideas. As neither party uses any doctrinal tests on points of faith, each individual has his own view and holds it at his own convenience. It ought to be borne in mind that the Quakers never really called themselves a church, but were known from the first as the Religious Society of Friends. They began by protesting against the vanities, pride, and social exclusiveness that prevailed in their early day about two hundred years ago among those who professed to be Christians, and particularly against the abuses of the established religion of their times. They were Puritans who outwent the Puritans in everything but their intolerance. They denounced evil and sinful practices with great vehemence, but they observed charity towards those whom they regarded as misled. Taking their rise in the seventeenth century, they shared the severity of manner that marked all the earnest men of that time, and did many very extravagant things. They were religious enthusiasts in antagonism to the rank infidelity prevailing at that period even in the church itself, and they insisted that the Holy Spirit guided every conscientious individual through life and influenced him and his conduct, that this spirit became an inward monitor, directing his impulses, and as such was entitled to obedience. They held that every man born into the world was given a light to guide him. 
They accepted the Bible as of divine authority, but did not believe that all inspiration was confined to it. In short, they held that when they preached or prayed, the spirit of truth guided them. This was the confessed belief of the church of that day, but it was the actual belief of the Quakers. After the first heat of their early enthusiasm was dissipated, they settled down into a most orderly and prudent fraternity, practically religious while free from all doctrinal controversies. Their labor, socially, was divided between their religious duties of devotional piety and worship and the religious duties that embraced all works of charity and kindness to men at large and the care of the spiritual interests of their own members. They were bound to each other as one family, and they held it as primary duty to assist each other in all cases where assistance was needed. The sick and poor among them were always saved from want, and they observed the wiser policy of assisting anyone who was badly off to help himself. They fully recognized the idea of man's equality and recognized it practically by discarding all distinctions among men not based upon some use or duty. Their scrupulous regard for the feelings of each other and the care with which they considered the self-respect of the poor or the unthrifty bred among them a spirit of earnest though plain politeness that was really beautiful. As each one was born a member of the society, they came under training pretty early in life, and there were very few exceptions among them to genuine good breeding. And yet I have met with some exceptions, and they were intensified specimens of brutal rudeness. Bred carefully from early life to good morals, they were exemplary as a body, and the grosser sins were little known among them though absolute purity of morals did not characterize them of later years more than other professedly religious people. This sketch of the Quakers may cast some light upon our mode of life in Mount Pleasant. End of section 2